WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosie. It's such a fine line between stupid and and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosie. Film lovers, welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at M that's M S O C E Y at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter at Matthew Sosi. The show is available as a podcast and it's also available on iTunes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, full disclosure, I, I wasn't able to see anything new this week. Work got in the way of the show, which happens, but uh, my evening work gets in the way as well. Well, uh, full disclosure, I'm in a production of Fiddler on the Roof at Richmond Civic Theater, and that opens August 4th and runs August 4th through the 6th and 11th through the 13th. You can go to GoRCT.org for ticket information. I'm playing the rabbi. My daughter Emma is in the chorus, so if you want to see what we look like, uh, now's your chance. Uh, I wasn't able to see anything new this week, although Dunkirk is still in theaters. Best film of the summer so far. Uh Prepare for it to be loud. Bigger the screen, the better, especially at IMAX. So, uh, and if that is uh, not up your up your your uh, snuff, <laughs> mixing things there. Uh, there's a musical adaptation of Jane Eyre called J Eyre, which is happening over at the Grove House, and it runs uh, the 28th and 29th at 8 p.m. and then the 30th at 6 p.m. So. Uh, that's worth checking out. I, I wasn't able. I forgot to mention that on last week's show, but it's a the eclectic pond production. Paige Scott salute, but uh, yeah, that is happening the twenty eighth and 29th at eight p.m. and the thirtieth at six p.m. and that is over at the uh, Grove House. Got to see Equus there last year. Very cool. Very cool space for theater. Um, a few other thing. Movie notes. Get back to the film por- film portion of the film show. Um, there's still one film that there are tickets for at the IMA Museum Summer Film Series, and that is Serenity on Friday, August 18th. Over at the Tibbs Drive-In uh, this weekend, they're showing the Emoji Movie along with Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, Spider-Man Homecoming, and War for the Planet of the Apes, Atomic Blonde and Girls Trip for your girls' night out, and then Wish Upon and Dunkirk. Ooh, there's a... There's a Fascinating. Uh, and then over at the Skyline Drive-In, you have War for the Planet of the Apes and the Emoji Movie. Mark your calendars over at the Historic Artcraft Theater in Franklin, Indiana, on Friday, August 4th at 2 and 7.30 p.m., Best in Show. And then on Friday and Saturday, August 11th and 12th at 2 and 7.30 p.m. at the Historic Artcraft Theater in Franklin, 12 Angry Men. So uh, plenty of plenty of things to see out there. Now, uh, 
because the bad news was I wasn't able to see anything new. The other bad news was, of course, that actor John Hurd passed away at the last week at the age of 71. And uh, earlier this week, I got to talk with IBJ entertainment editor and fellow film critic Lou Harry about John Hurd's career. Here's the John Hurd Appreciation Society here in Indianapolis. Enjoy. Joining me on Film Sociology is a longtime IFJA member and IBJ guru, well, one of the uh, entertainment editor. But uh, Lou Harry is hanging out with me. How are you, Lou? I'm doing good. That's a lot of initials. Uh, it throwing is. Out it. P, uh, PDQ and uh, that that bit Robin Williams does in Good Morning Vietnam. Anyway, we it's it's it, we're here to talk a little bit about the career of actor John Hurd, who passed away last week, and of course, um, all of the news headlines. And it's I know it's it's and, and and it's a little frustrating, but basically every headline had him referred to as Home Alone actor, including Variety, In, including Variety, because ladies and gentlemen, that is the film that made that John Hurt appeared in that apparently made the most money. Right. And but this is a man whose career spans over forty years. Hundred and some, hundred and some credits and yeah. TV, and just you know, and in in the going back to uh, the seventies and, and early eighties, classic that guy, whose name you you wound up uh, memorizing pretty early on. Right, I would say you know into the eighties and nineties, it was a lot of that guy. Early on, it was the potential for. I mean, he was doing leading roles. Right, he was. There was. We were talking before recording. There was. There was a wave of New York actors uh, making the transition from stage to screen in the late seventies, early eighties, and and Heard was was a part of that wave. Right, he was doing a, a theater in New York. Um, was in you know Shakespeare in the Park stuff. Was Cassio and Othello. Was understudying Hamlet. Did a. Uh, uh, Broadway uh, gentleman caller in the Glass Menagerie, so he was you know he was getting the parts. Yes, he was, and uh, and kind of looking back at his career, and we, yes, we will be going through the IMDb list because that's what we do here at times. <laughs> but but yeah, he had a couple of lead roles in films that have now had a, a cult status following. Uh, there's there's a great three volume book series by uh, Danny Peary called Cult Movies, uh, two of which. Were, uh, featuring him are mentioned in those series, mm. and Lou watched one recently, and I watched the other recently. Uh, we didn't plan this; it just kind of happened. Right. But uh, but I and and I, I turns out I I, uh, I got a bonus in the guest department because I know uh, I found out from Lou that Chili Scenes of Winter really resonated with Lou Harry, not just because he's a John Hurd fan. Uh, Lou, please. No, I, I in part became a John Hurd fan because of of Chili Scenes of Winter, and and to a lesser extent between the lines, and then Cutter's Way which we'll talk about, but Chili Scenes of Winter uh, is a 1979 film based on a Joan Micklin Silver, I mean, sorry, Joan Micklin Silver directed, one of the early women directors, right. too, who, who did some substantial work, uh, but based on an Ann Beattie novel. Now, if you don't know Ann Beattie, she was very much almost the quintessential New Yorker short story writer. Mm -hmm. um, her stuff was very, almost felt passive in the writing. Her characters weren't as a rule, strongly motivated <laughs> to do anything. And Chili Sins of Winter is kind of quintessential of that. It's about a guy who, and we flash all over the place in this, but the core story is um, Charles uh, was kind of a desk job guy in a bland place, and he's doing okay. He has kind of a hanger-on friend, and his sister's in college, and, and he's the inherited the house, and his mother's a mess. But he's getting by. Right. And he meets this woman, Laura, who has just left her husband. Um, not divorced, but has separated from her husband. They meet. There's a romance. Goes on a couple of months. She goes back to her husband. Now, this is not told chronologically. No. It's told out of sequence. We meet Charles when long after, maybe a year after, they've broken up and she's gone back to her husband. And as his life has continued to be pretty much nothing that he can be passionate about, he becomes more and more locked on to the idea that that relationship was something truly special. Mm -hmm. And he's wrestling with how to and whether to get her back. Um, and it's, it's the book is great. The book is great. The movie's really interesting because he has <laughs> all of the sort of charm and in quirks and interest of the traditional romantic leading man, 
but you're not sure whether his mission you you can't fully get behind his mission right there there's a number of romantic comedies ladies and gentlemen before we go off too much on a tangent it's if normal looking people acted the way the folks in romantic comedies acted my best friend's wedding how to lose a guy in 10 days uh <laughs> while you were sleeping you right. you would need therapy you would right. need you would need uh st- you know state appointed counseling but because it's Act, you know the the good looking handsome attractive actors that we enjoy it, it we accept it I think a little bit more as an audience but um also uh, and chilly scenes of winter was a film i didn't I had never seen until last year so anytime i, I anytime I see a film that is listed in the cult movies book by Danny Perry, I get really excited and this was one of those and watching it what I remember and I think it's fresher and lose uh, memory than mine but yeah it it is I don't think United Artists tried to push this as a typical romantic comedy because I think they would have lost a lot of money. <laughs> um, but they but they were kind of perplexed at what they had. and then But watching it finally, I think every independent romantic comedy of the last 15, 20 years owe a huge debt to Chilly Scenes of Winter. And you cited some uh, one of the more uh, notable romantic comedies of the last decade that really is a bridge with which was 500 days of summer Mm -hmm. which i think if you if you truly connected to that movie and got the fact that it's about a guy who is romanticizing a relationship that he he's romanticizing a romance right he's romanticizing the relationship he had with this woman and that really it wasn't what he's turned it into in his mind Mm -hmm. then you could you would really connect it to chilly scenes of winter it has such a um, the, the the universe that this guy's in is so interesting and grounded. Yep, and you know. but there's also breaking of the breaking of the fourth wall. Yes, there, you said the chronological aspect of it, uh, and and then of course the behavioral aspects right. of it. And and there are moments where you you totally buy into yes, that moment between them was magical. That moment between them was wonderful, and then there's a little scary moment, <laughs> and then there's you know and then he says something totally inappropriate. It's also a really good film at, and anyone who's been in any kind of relationship for any time knows that sometimes you don't say the right thing, or sometimes you say the right thing at the wrong time. Right. And there's wonderful moments like that. And Mary Beth Hurt, no relation, who plays uh, opposite him in this is terrific. Peter Riegert is wonderful. And Gloria Graham. I know. Uh, Kenneth McMillan. Kenneth um, I, and I feel terrible. The guy who played Niedermeyer in <laughs> Animal House. Yes, there's two Animal House alum in this film, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but it, it has sort of a strange history, too. It was originally released. They changed the title to the incredible, incredibly bland Head Over Heels. Yeah. And released it with an... Don't want to spoil anything. Spoiler sure. alert. Fast know. forward three minutes. Um, but they released it with what sort of is a happy ending. Now, the ending, though, in the, it, this is going to be confusing. It's okay. The ending of Head Over Heels is closer in action to the ending of the book. Mm-hmm. But it's off in tone. Okay. It feels like it's trying to be a happy ending and trying to excuse everything that's come before. And it shouldn't. So when the film disappeared quickly, they recut it and let her let Joe McConsilver put the ending and basically cut off the ending, mm-hmm. cut off that happy ending moment, left it at the introspective downer point that is in a way in tone truer to the book. So by getting away from the facts of the book, they became truer to the book in the edited version. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that that became that went. Out again under the title "Chilly Scenes of Winter." It also tanked, but right. You know. And this was, and I, this era always fascinates me because we are. This is uh, the film came out in 1979. We uh, Hollywood is in full blown blockbuster mode because of Star Wars, right. Jaws, all that stuff. So I've always been fascinated by the smaller pictures that the studio either wasn't paying attention to or didn't care, and and. Uh, this was one of those. This right. was, you know, they're like, well, it's not very expensive. We'll just kind of plop it out there and see what happens. On the other hand, this was the early days of HBO, and which is where I encountered ah, it, whether okay. it was on HBO or Showtime or whatever they, sure. the pay but service figured, was. If they, if they couldn't get it in the theaters, they could, they could slap it on TV and play it uh, ten times right. a week. So, so I ended up seeing it like five times in, in two weeks or something, which let me feed in, in a pre, uh, pre-VHS yes. obsession. <laughs> 
You know, that was the way you sort of uh, got to know a film. Take note, kids. Right. Um, and I ended up, you know, I, I think the book and the film have had a huge influence on my writing. Mm -hmm. Certainly, um, rereading uh, parts of the book again and seeing the film again, I could see my attempt to be uh, to be Ann Beatty in my in some of my playwriting and some of my uh, book writing, but that wasn't that wasn't his first um, his first sort of starring role. The, the sort of entry point into Hollywood was Between the Lines, which was right. also a Joan Micklin Silver film, mm -hmm. um, which is really interesting. I haven't been able to find it recently. Saw it again a couple years ago. Um, that is an ensemble comedy drama, more comedy. Um, you know, it's in that vague. Yes. Um, but it's about a, an alternative newspaper, kind of the equivalent of Nouveau News Weekly, in Boston. Um, Bruno Kirby, I believe, is in It's this. an amazing yeah, cast. Yeah, you look, if you look at it, it's like, it's like a that guy quirk It's best. Lindsay Krauss, it's Jill Eikenberry, right. it's Michael J. Pollard. All these young, up-and-coming, hungry actors. Jeff Goldblum. Yes. Um, and it goes even deeper mm -hmm. than that. But it's about the the uh, staff of this paper. So we go in and out of their lives, their love lives, their ambitions, the guy who wants to be a writer, the you know, a novelist, the one who this, the one who that, the romances. But And some of the performances are uh, a little awkward now, but, and, but really <laughs> earnest. Mm -hmm. But Heard is just grounded and true. And in this, in Choices of Winter, and in even the smaller things he's done since then, there's almost always a sense in the guy that there's a joke in his head that he's not sure he should tell or not. Yes. Um, when when he passed, Daniel Stern went on social media and wrote about, he, he was very dear friends with Hurd, and they and yes, they did a couple of films together, but they, I think, lived together for a while mm. and told about some of the... Uh, Hmm. Some of the antics that went on, and so yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because yeah, they they were, you know, not not the Hellraisers of the English classical train theater guys, but they were New Yorker guys, you know, twenty something guys in New York in the seventies and eighties, and they were they were having a good time. And and Hurd was very introspective later about how he went from theater to film and didn't fully appreciate and respect the. Uh, you know the guy behind the camera and the person doing mm -hmm. the sound and the um, and I think there's sort of a sadness to that um, that he was he did have a, a number of key starring roles uh, those films weren't ones that took off right and so he became the guy who took every job um, and became known for things like Home Alone which and, but also became to know that if you know, he was going to be he was going to be good even if the material wasn't and we'll we'll get to that yes, we'll get, we'll get to bit. that phase but yeah you talk about because you mentioned between the lines and then a few other projects, which right. I'm, yeah, those are ones you're still kind of looking for. You might see if somebody put it on YouTube. We don't <laughs> right. we don't condone such behavior. The, the but, other early one, there's between right. the lines, choice scenes between them was a prison film called On the Yard, which okay. I haven't seen in 30 years, but remember being I remember very strong. First Love with uh, William Cat and Susan <laughs> yeah, Day. Yeah, doing Rush the supporting it. thing. But then there was there was and Heartbeat. As Jack right, Carroll. we'll get that. So yeah, so if we kind of here were your first, and then these were all released in a row. Right. Um, Within 1979 and 1982, yeah, Chili Scenes of Winter, didn't do well. Heartbeat, where he's Jack Kerouac, and it was a film with Nick Nolte and Sissy Spacek, and it didn't quite find right, an audience. Look, another one that, that most people saw because it was an early HBO. Right, and then Cutter's Way, which I'll get to in a sec, and then Paul Schrader's Cat People, which right. different. But, but yeah, Cutter's Way, um, you talk about a contrast from Chili Scenes of Winter to this, and then also playing Jack Kerouac in Heartbeat, but Cutter's Way... All, almost became Cutter and Bone, um, mm. which I'm surprised they didn't use that because it they you, United Artists could have passed this off as a as an intense Southern California detective thriller, right. which it's not. Right. But it's uh, Jeff Bridges, a mustachio Jeff Bridges plays a kind of a small time gigolo who uh, is accused of a murder, and his best friend. It's it's funny the, yeah, the connection between this and Lebowski. Right. He witnesses. He witnesses a murder. Maybe. But, but his <laughs> his best friend is a one eyed, limped veteran Hellraiser played right. by John Hurd, right. um, who who has it in his head that a high profile businessman is the killer. Right. And there's another case in a way connected in a weird way to Chili Season Winter because it's about a guy who who latches onto an idea. 
and won't and let that go. idea becomes the thing you want to go but a completely different character yeah i mean not either there's a scene his first scene he's it's in a bar late at night and he's first he's quoting shakespeare and then he's then he's dropping some racial epithets in right. front of in front of the the majority of the crowd and it's not going to end well right and let's put ourselves back in 1981 you know after a string of films where we're supposed to you know suddenly in films realized that the vietnam war had happened and are, and are treating, you know, uh, mm. Vietnam vets in a way that is sort of ultra respectful. And here's a guy who is who went through the war. We don't get a whole lot of the background, but he's deeply damaged. He's a smart guy, and he's taking advantage of it. Mm-hmm. There's an ama- I mean, it, in, there's an amazing scene where he crashes a car. Uh, yeah. A neighbor's driveway. Inebriated. And, and horrible. He's drunk. Yeah. I mean, he, he's a danger to everyone. He's being horrible. And he's being a jerk to the guy who's, you know, the neighbor. And then the cops show up and he plays the Play, vet plays card. Plays the vet card, yeah. Yeah. And it's, Sorry, it's an guys. amazing. And yeah, right. And he does the, I know a little something about duty. He says right. to the police officer. <laughs> You know, and you and you feel for the neighbor because you, he can't right. Win. And and the more he gets exasperated, the worse he looks. Right. Because of this veteran. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's a, an, again, it's another solid thriller, and it's also in the the Danny Perry books. And uh, yeah, it it, it it it's funny because watching this with Jeff Bridges, I I kept watching, I kept thinking of the relationship between the dude and Walter in Big yeah. Lebowski to a much more animated right. Uh, right. sense of that uh, collaboration. And a breathtaking performance by Lisa Icorn. Yeah. Who had her shot. Basically, it was that and Yanks and then kind of disappeared. Right. But still working. Still you know, working, one, yeah. But still gets the work. Yeah. But, man, when you get a part like that, she, um, well, his, I mean, I I wonder, and I, you can't change history, but right. what happens if that film had been, if Cutter's Way had been acknowledged for the film it is? And it's a great, I mean, I believe it's a truly great film. Mm-hmm. Um, if that had been acknowledged and he had even gotten an Academy Award nomination. I mean, that was, mm. I think, Raging Bull year, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, actually, 80, this uh, came out in 81. So it's the it's the year of Reds, Chariots Fire, Raiders of the okay. Lost Ark, okay. Atlantic okay. City. But it's in that ballpark. Right. And, you know. You've, it, it, maybe a little it boost. Little it boost. would have changed. I mean, for an actor. Mm-hmm. He might have, you know, and, you know, Cat People was probably already in can, which I th- still think is a neat film. I love Paul Schrader films, even yeah. no matter how good or how bad they can be. Right. And, and the fact that he was he was in a uh, trying to do a sort of remake of a Cat People story from the 40s. And there's a weird incestuous thing between the yeah. and Malcolm McDowell and mm-hmm. and, and Annette O'Toole. I mean, it's it's fascinating. It is right. it is truly an early 80s film of every right. sense of the word from the from the synth score. And yeah, and but it also does a neat thing in the beginning. It does the um, we're going to do a very violent opening so that, you know, we're capable of that. And then we're right. going to be suspenseful for a long time. And you're, you're going to wait for another moment like the beginning. Right. You're, Hang on. You're going to know we're capable. But, you know, then you know, you know, start then you start to see the dip after Cutter's Way and Cat People. Chud. Then it's Chud, <laughs> which I went to see in the theaters. Also on HBO like every but, other day. But I went to see that the weekend it opened really? because John Hurd and Daniel Stern were in it. <laughs> I remember going yep. from college out to... To see Chud because I was excited that a John Heard film. There's there's a couple other titles which I still haven't found, but there's one that he, that he appeared in that I think is a, underappreciated, and it sometimes gets lumped into the kind of horny teenager films. But he played Brother Timothy in Heaven Help Us, and he's great. And I hated it's, that movie. You hated the movie? hated the movie? Okay, so let me. This is it's set in a Catholic high school in the '60s. Probably was shot in Toronto for all we know, right. but because you have Donald Sutherland. Um, Kevin Dillon, who's trying right. to be Matt Dillon, his brother, not right. quite, but um, Andrew McCarthy, uh, Kate Reed, that's how I also know it's Canadian, um, Mary Stewart <laughs> Masterson, and, and Wallace Shawn yep. has a cameo, and it's the, you know, it is it is these guys chasing girls and the, and the usual uh, high school shenanigans, and it just happens to be set in a, in a Catholic school in right. the 60s, so you have men in robes, and they're slapping hands with, you know, the, the wooden paddles, yeah. and I mean, it's but it, yeah, it's it's altar boys getting excited all, right. when girls are going up for communion. And, yeah, Patrick Dempsey's in it. So yeah, there's there's all those horny aspects, but it does have a heart with Andrew McCarthy 
and Mary Stuart Masterson, and Heard plays the cool brother, right. the one who has baseball cards, the one who smokes, the one who hangs out at the, you know, at the soda shop. Mm-hmm. Why did you hate this film? <laughs> oh, I remember, and that was another one. I think I I was reviewing it in college <laughs> and just thought this, and I and I have a problem with a. I was having a problem with a lot of the teen films. I mean, I'm one of the people who can't stand Sixteen Candles. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on that because. I was I was a kid. the The films of the S. E. Hinton novels ruined the John Hughes suburban fairy tales right. for me. Anyway. I'll take some kind of wonderful from the John Hughes ish okay. canon, but that's about it. I'm still watching Rumblefish. There you go. <laughs> um, I, I just was really crushed and disappointed, and liked, but liked Heard in it. I mean, Heard was <laughs> was strong, um, but the, I mean, the next one was another that he's really good in After Hours. Uh, yes, of course, and I, I I remember being 15 years old and declaring that the best film in 1985. Okay. Uh, it was just weird all night. Right. Griffin Dunn in this kind of uh, right. New York inferno after hour after right. midnight kind of place. If you yeah, he plays the bartender in that that sort of gets circled back to a couple times. A little bit. If you have a conversation with somebody about the films of Martin Scorsese. After Hours may be one of the last films you talk about. Probably. It just doesn't come up in conversation. And Scorsese in the 80s is a fascinating time, but that's another discussion here there. Right. The, uh, that Before that, it's, and, and it's a film that's very near and dear to my heart, and I got to direct the play twice, but he got to play Ludie Watts in the film version of Horton Foote's Trip to Bountiful. Um, yeah, same with, year. After yeah, Hours, Heaven Help Us. And not bad. And Not, I, it might Bountiful. be my favorite John Hurd year, yeah. uh, but it's you know Trip the Bountiful. Uh, Robert, if I remember right, Robert Mulligan directed it. But it's uh, a woman, uh, a widow, uh, Mrs. Watts, who's living with her son, who is recovering from a long illness and is trying to get back in the workforce. The domineering uh, daughter-in-law, and all Mrs. Watts wants to do is return to her childhood home in Bountiful one final time. It's played by the great Geraldine Page. She won Best Actress mm-hmm. that year. And Ludie is a hard—I mean, they're all difficult roles. Um, you know, Mrs. Watts carries the film it, and carries the play. I call I called uh, Gene Adams Queen Lear <laughs> for carrying that. Jessie May, who's the daughter-in-law, it's, you have to make her antagonistic without making her into a villain. She's also kind of the comic relief. And the Ludie role that John Hurd plays, as we, I remember as we were working on the script, it's a lot of yes, ma'am, mm-hmm. no, ma'am, yes, Jesse May, no, Jesse May, but you get a heartbreaking monologue at the end about everything that that Ludie felt he should should have done as a as a husband and as a son, mm-hmm. and and her just brings it. I yeah. mean, that's it's a I think it's a great great film. It's probably the closest thing to seeing him on stage, and I would yeah. have loved to have seen him on stage, but I'm guessing that that's that performance is probably the. You know, but part of it is because of the play, because the film has stage roots. So, so we you talked about him taking projects and projects. You know, he appeared in Robert Redford's film version of the Milagro Beanfield War with a neat confrontation with Christopher Walken. Yep, in that. Um, but again, that's that's very much an ensemble. Exactly. Piece. Um, um, so it's easy to, you know, I'm sure there were many reviews at the time that didn't mention him. Right. You know, he's, but it was that. Oh, there he is. Yeah, and he's good. And and. He, you put the collar back on for the seventh sign. He's in the seventh sign, which is weird. And then my daughter got to see some of his work recently because she fell in love with the film Big. There was uh-huh. a kind of a then there was another way where he was maybe either second or second yeah. level or the like big under the title where he's he's you know he's the antagonist beaches he's the object and right. then he's also an antagonist in Awakenings in nineteen ninety so and then he I know he appeared in Betrayed and the Package. And, yeah, and the then, package I haven't seen does that hold up? Um, it's an Andrew Davis. It's not my. It's not my fifth favorite Andrew Davis film, but <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and then in one year he appeared in Awakenings, and then Home Alone, which of course made a gajillion dollars. And right, thanks so variety. I'm sure the house and pool were paid for by Go, that and one. good for him. But but then uh, following and up. By with, the way, going back to the package. Go ahead. Yes. For, for uh, Indianapolis audiences. Oh. Uh, Butler University head of theater department Diane Timmerman has a small part in that film. No way. Did you know that? I did not. In the package, I'm yeah, she going... does. <laughs> okay, there's a joke, and I'm not going to do it. You Diane's going to go hit me, so I will look for Diane Timmerman in the package. Um, gosh, going through Deceived, Radio Flyer. He had his cameo in Ram- Rambling Rose, um, and you can see in the you know we start to get in that phase of the res where it feels like 
you sort I mean, yes, there are some that are clearly just, I need the gig, but good directors are hiring him. Yeah. You know, you have Redford hiring him for Milagro Beanfield War. You have uh, In the Line of Fire. Yeah. Um, you have, you know, Pelican Brief. You have... Yeah, they, the first time I realized it, because he, uh, Alan Pakula directed Pelican Brief, and he his character doesn't last very long, but there's a scene with his shirt off, and you're like, oh, he's getting older. He's got a gut, <laughs> like me. Look at it's that. He's a human being. Um, and then there was a, a before and after with Barbara Schroeder, and I remember, I actually watched a few episodes, and I was a fan of the film version of The Client, and of course they tried to make a TV show of that with Joe Beth Williams oh. in the Susan Sarandon role, and he's the Tommy Lee Jones character, Roy, mm-hmm. uh, Reverend Roy. Um, and then, yeah, just constantly, constantly working. Working, Animal right. Factory, uh, Snake Eyes, Silent Cradle. Um, he was oh. the dean in O, that's yeah. right. Um, and so now we're at a point, I'm not going to, Bring up white chicks. I just do. But <laughs> and there's TV movies and a TV lot of TV appearances. stuff. So he's one of those actors, also, that I, I ask you, Lou Harry, because I know, because uh-huh. um, I look at it as IMDb, and there's a there's at least a page and a half of stuff I've never even heard right. of or never saw. I know the last thing I saw him in, and and even even as the drunken barfly in the very first sharknado right yeah john hurd was in a sharknado film yes it was it was it was the more respectful stunt casting than what that shark than what that film series has done when it comes to stunt casting right. there so. was a um interview i listened to from about a year ago where he basically said i haven't done anything serious in 10 years Yep. And that just is heartbreaking. It is. Because, you know, and but but again, as I said in the beginning, he was very self-aware of the fact that his, you know, his attitude and his naivete and his arrogance early on didn't help. Right. You know, uh, but but it's not like it kept him from working. No. And, <laughs> but, you know, there was, I think, uh, according to IMDb, two things that were completed in post-production and film. I mean, you, you know, he was working right up until the day. Until right. he, and, he was in the hospital, and one of the the highest profile things that we, you know, after Home Alone that we didn't mention was yeah. The Sopranos. That's right. Yes. You know, a not a bad thing in the first season. Very key role, you know, for what five or six episodes mm-hmm. of The Sopranos. So, ladies and gentlemen, this uh, and this this I don't know if it if it's like this with you, Lou. I when when an artist passes, I tend to when we kind of did this. You did it with Chili Scenes. I did it with Cutter's Way. Of of going back and revisiting some of their work now. Part of it is because of you know <clears throat> research purposes for this program, but but it's it's a healthy reminder of uh, you know you don't you don't necessarily and I, I tell this to students you don't necessarily have to be the twenty million a picture thing so long as you're working so long as the check's yeah. clear and 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 hopefully so long as you're doing something that you enjoy and uh, and hurt is kind of a uh, I use the term a walking talking what to do and what not to do. You should hopefully be smart enough to figure out figure out the difference. Right. I will share my one encounter with him. Yes, yes, please do. I was at the Humana Festival of New American Plays down in Louisville, and if you care about new work and, and love being in a vibrant atmosphere, go down there. It's only two hours away, and you can see, like, five plays in a weekend and all that. So mm-hmm. I'm down there on Industry Weekend, and, you know, there's Paul Bartel falling asleep at a theater, <laughs> you know, in one of the plays. And, and, you know, other people, you sort of go, hey, I think, who's that? Oh, that that's guy. who that yeah. is. And I run into John Hurd in the lobby man and i'm like i i don't do the fan thing yeah you're pretty you're pretty reserved on that you know I'm not, but here's a guy who really had an influence on you know my thinking about acting and thinking about uh writing just by his delivery i mean i hear his voice and some of the stuff i try to write did you tell him that well i yes i basically said I, and i mentioned chili scenes and i mentioned cutter's way and he looked at me Took out his souvenir Louisville Slugger mini baseball bat that he had, <laughs> pretended to hit me on the head with it, and walked away. That was my encounter with John Hurd. And that sums it up right there. Lou Harry, thanks you for, uh, for helping out in the John Hurd retrospect. A pleasure. That was IBJ Entertainment Editor Lou Harry, also a member of the Indiana Film Journalists Association, the IFJA, talking about the films of John Hurd. A lot of titles we mentioned. Uh, hopefully you can check those out at your local video store or on lo- your online demand stuff. I'm old. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back after the break, we're going to dip into the interview archives with a piece with an update on a film uh, that we talked about on, here on the show. It is now getting a video release in the U.K., but it's a fun, fun documentary we're checking out 
regardless of when it's released on video. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org. Robert Irvine, and you're listening to Film Sociology, WFI in Indianapolis. This is TNA knockout Gail Kim, and you're listening to Film Sociology. Thank you, Robert. Welcome back to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msoci at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosi. All right, I had to play those. Uh, Robert Irvine, of course, who's a regular guest on this show. Uh, his new restaurant, Robert Irvine Public House, just opened this week at the Tropicana Hotel in Las Vegas. So congrats to him. Um, the reason why he was doing Gail's was uh, the first time I interviewed Gail for the show, uh, after the interview, I asked her to do a show ID and uh, it took her a couple of tries before getting it, and apparently Robert was standing next to her and making fun of her for not getting it on the first take. So he took the phone and showed how easy it was to do an ID. And at the very least, I have Robert saying he's Gail. He's saying he's his wife. So that's entertaining. It is to me. All right. Um, we heard an interview with uh, Lou Harry earlier in the show uh, talking about the career of John Hurd. Another person we're going to dip into the archives uh, for the second half of the show. Mike Malloy is the director of the documentary Eurocrime, which was a fun documentary about the Italian cop and gangster films of the 1970s. The film just got its video release in the UK, so a great excuse to go back and talk with my chat with Mike Malloy about his documentary Eurocrime. Enjoy. Joining me on Film Sociology right now, the writer, director, editor, and co-producer of the documentary Eurocrime. Who do you think you are, John Sales? Mike Malloy is here. Hi, Mike. Hey there. What is the reference? Because I have an exclamation point? Is that it? <laughs> no, the writing, directing, editing, oh, co-producing. I see. Or you're Robert Rodriguez. He's another one who edits his own work, I believe. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, the editing was a real hitch on this one. Uh, a year plus on the editing. Wow. I would say, um, so, of course, your documentary is about the Italian police and crime movies of the 70s. What was your, you personally, what was your first Euro crime movie experience? Well, that, a lot of people ask me, like, uh, what film, you know, pushed me over into Euro crime obsession. And it didn't happen that way at all for me. Uh, I got into these films before I knew they were a genre. I, you know, I would just see selected, isolated little Italian-made crime films, and it never occurred to me that this was a whole genre. This was something that came after the spaghetti westerns, because the Italians were very fat-oriented, and they would burn something out, and then they'd move on to something else. And after the Italians had ripped off the American western, put on their own spin, and came up with something entirely different, after they exhausted that, they turned to Dirty Harry, cop films, and The Godfather, gangster films, and they did that from like 1972 to 1980. So I was just seeing all these films, and like in college and stuff, people would say, what kind of movies do you like, Mike? And I would tell them why. You know, I like Italian films. I like French films. They thought I probably was watching highbrow stuff like, you know, the 400 Blows or something like that. And meanwhile, I was watching these, uh, you know, shoot ups with all these grisly murders in them. 
And they always had, you know, usually an American or an English star and a director, and it's usually listed, directed by Nick Jones. You're like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they would anglicize the uh, the director's names or something like that, but that that happened more with the spaghetti westerns. By the time the Eurocrime films came around, uh, pretty people pretty much knew that they were getting uh, an Italian product out of Italy. But the Eurocrime films didn't penetrate the U.S. like the Spaghetti Westerns did. So that's why now, you know, this this revival movement that kind of spurred me to do the documentary, uh, you know, 30 years belated, these films are finally, you know, resonating with American audiences. So I guess I'll, I'll try a different approach on what What were the films that did motivate you to start this documentary? Oh, there, there are a number of them. Uh, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, there's so many different cuts and there's so many different titles. Like there's one that I love called Rome Armed to the Teeth, but I only recommend it in its assault with a deadly weapon incarnation uh, because, um, I don't know, they, they just lopped off the first 20 minutes and made it a much better film under the title Assault with a Deadly Weapon. Uh, but, you know, some of the ones that have been available for streaming on Netflix that people can easily see are things like Caliber 9, and Street Law. Street Law is a great vigilante film, uh, and there's some debate as to, you know, because everybody just assumes that the Italians are the rip-off artists, um, but there's some debate as to whether Street Law came out before Death Wish. They both are 1974 films. Right, and uh, I say, as you point out in the in the documentary, one of the things that the Italians did to make it their own was the amount of violence and cruelty I mean misogynistic cruelty and sex scenes in it um, was that from the get-go uh, yeah the Italians did not have the same puritanical influences that American cinema did or the American cinema was you know shedding by that time but still had the last vestiges of uh, the Italian cinema you know the main thing that I see difference as far as their boundaries of violence is the Italians almost delighted in killing kids and that's still in American cinema was a big taboo. But yeah, there would be like this one movie where there's a, a bunch of kids, kids getting out of school and they happen upon the scene of a bank robbery. So this whole school's worth of kids around this corner, right? As some, you know, bank robber with an itchy trigger finger, just, you know, is ready to down people. And he does exactly that. Uh, just, it's just unbelievable. the carnage where kids are concerned. It's funny you mentioned that because last year I don't know if you ever saw Hobo with a Shotgun, but they have a whole I, a whole school bus gets torched up filled with kids. Yeah, as I say, America, uh, North American cinema. I know that was Canadian, but North American cinema has finally kind of uh, shed some of those boundaries. But the Italians were, you know, a good thirty years ahead of us. Uh. And one of the things that was brought up, and I know Fred Williamson brought this up about how American uh, American audiences and some American actors were kind of kind of pampered as far as getting the best and the biggest budgets and the fact that, you know, he, he was shooting movies there where they didn't even stay quiet during shooting. And, you know, a lot of it was dubbing later, but it was a completely different shooting environment. Yeah, you kind of bring up two different things. Uh, the one, they did not shoot live sound, so that was an adjustment for American actors to show up on set and as they're giving their line deliveries, yeah, the, the sets are being built next door and people are pounding with hammers and people are out uh, ordering their cappuccino and, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, that was a big adjustment. But then also uh, something that Fred Williamson, uh, the American star, alluded to is the fact that, you know, you show up and there's no star egos in an Italian crew. Uh, there was no barriers. There was no hierarchy on set. Everybody was just there to make a movie. And, uh yeah, uh, maybe the only ego or macho uh, thing was uh, the Italians. Uh, everybody wanted to perform their own stunts. The big leading stars, you know, it was just expected uh, that, you know, this was a manly, you know, tough guy movie. Of course I'm going to, you know, jump out of the car myself. Of course I'm going to jump out of the second-story building myself. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, the French actor Jean-Paul Belmondo. Big, big international star, you know, became a star with the French New Wave movies, uh, you know, these dramas. But by the, the time the Eurocrime movies rolled around in the 70s, uh, man, he, he went full bore into performing the stunts. I don't even know how they got insurance for those movies. Uh, did they have insurance, I guess is the question. 
Yeah, I don't know. These I, I, I've never. That's one aspect that I've never really delved into. But these movies are so run and gun, you know. With the, you know, they not only did they get the leading men to perform their own stunts, but they would just go out in public and what are what they called stealing shots. Uh, you know, they would just go and for, perform, you know, shootouts on the open public streets, and people just were assuming that, uh, you know, this was, you know, they were seeing some bank heist in progress and stuff. So it was very easy to get the the extras to act naturally. Well, and, and there was a little bit of that. I mean, there still is in, in the United States. I mean, we've, we've heard stories of Cassavetes and early Kubrick doing such things, but not to the degree of these guys. And, of course, it also helped that a lot of the Italian filmmakers also had to deal with a lot of the local quote-unquote characters. Yeah, yeah, especially down in southern Italy and areas like Naples. Um, the street people were a major influence, and, you know, uh, the, you know, there would be beggars on the corners and stuff, and if, if you wanted to shoot on that corner, then you had to pay the beggar what he thought he was going to make for the day and, and stuff like that. So in some ways it was a minor hassle to shoot down in southern Italy, but uh, in another way it was just uh, they were just tremendous. The filmmakers were tremendously liberated to just go out and do whatever, and they, they didn't. They didn't feel beholden to scripts either. You know, they would they would pass a unique location, and they're like, ah, let's just change it from a, a, a scene at the beach to a scene at the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so yeah, it's just they they were very spontaneous, and that's what a, a lot of the uh, actors and directors looking back say. Yeah, these films were extremely low budget, but they had you know just the, such a life to them because of the spontaneity, and they're such unpredictable. And today's movies, you know, you you see them, and you know. As one as one interviewee said, you almost know when the car's going to explode before it explodes. Mm-hmm. And the Italian films, just things came at you crazy like, and you just didn't know what to expect. Now, uh, yeah, a lot of the actors uh, did say if if there was still business, they would they would not only do business in Italy, Italy but also live there. What happened? Well, uh, the first decline in Italian cinema uh, happened at the end of the Eurocrime boom, uh, coincidentally. It had nothing to do with Eurocrime, but that's when, belatedly, the Italians started getting uh, more television. Because up till that point, they had only had about one and a half channels, and there was a very big restriction on how many movies could be shown on TV. So uh, the Italians went to the cinema maybe four or five times a week, uh, you know, kind of like we tune into stuff on TV four or five times a week. Um, and uh, by the mid-'70s, they finally started getting TV. They got satellites and, you know, antennas and stuff and started to bring in stuff from other countries. And so the uh, uh, film industry went into sharp decline then. They they kept on through the 80s. They turned to, to Mad Max ripoffs. They turned to Indiana Jones ripoffs. But um, you know, by the end of the '80s, it had it, it pretty it had wound down even more. Yeah, I remember Fred Williamson with a bow and arrow and shoulder pads and a headband, and that that equaled the future. Yeah, yeah, that's that was their version of Mad Max. Mad Max, and then throw in a little dash of Escape from New York, and that's that's what the Italians were obsessed with in the '80s. <laughs> now, you also one of the things that's most impressive about Eurocrime are the number of people you were able to uh, to get to sit down and talk. How many people did you talk to, and how long did it take to get everybody? Uh, I think we talked to 21 people that made the doc, and then uh, some came kind of afterwards that we hope to be including as DVD supplements or something like that. Um, yeah, it's uh, it was. I, I've never, I had never during the production of this whole thing, I had never left the country. I've never been to Italy. I've never been to Rome. The interviews that we picked up in Rome uh, were we. Uh, a great guy named Federico Cadeo uh, happens to shoot DVD supplements for the the big cult. DVD labels over in Europe, and he would, you know, drop a line to me and say, hey, I'm shooting an interview and so-and-so, do you want me to piggyback some Eurocrime questions on? So that worked out beautifully. And how many uh, how many actors and filmmakers did you personally interview? Um, uh, seven to nine, I think. Uh, you know, this was a real no-budget affair, um, you know, with, you know, basically uh, uh, fueled by fan support. So you know, we got some money on Kickstarter by the fans and everything. So uh, when I could limit my travel, I did. I you know tried not to be egotistical and to think that I needed to be there. I wrote all the questions for all the interviews, but I didn't feel as if I needed to be there in person if I had someone trusted that could you know set up the camera in my place. Okay, big geeky question. What was it like to interview Franco Nero? 
Uh, Franco Nero was very, very cool, but we kind of surprised him. Uh, I drove down to Miami, and um, he was there for a film festival, and I made a deal with the guy who uh, put him up. And uh, Franco Nero, I come into the house with the camera crew and everything, and Franco Nero was actually coming out of a, a hidden door in a false bookcase. How surreal is that? <laughs> <laughs> and he looks up, and there's a film crew uh, in, his, in the living room where he's staying. So... Um, yeah, that was that was my first time laying eyes on Franco Nero. <laughs> well, and, and the fact that the man's still working today, uh, decades later, and supposed, and of course, you know, started out in spaghetti westerns and moved on to Euro crime when he when he wasn't wooing Guinevere. Ah, uh, right, right. Uh, yeah, he's he's remained very relevant. Uh, all this Django Unchained stuff aside, yeah, he was uh, recently in an episode of Law and Order. He was, uh, you know, in that Letters to Julia thing. Yep. Uh, yeah, so he's he's staying very relevant, and I'm very pleased because you know he's a he's a tremendous movie star. Now, did you see or or were aware of the documentaries Not Quite Hollywood, Machete Maidens Unleashed, when making this? Uh, yeah, the Eurocrime again. Uh, this was not like not quite Hollywood, which had, uh, which I presume had Australian Cultural Commission dollars behind it. This was just one guy. I started the documentary in my living room. I had to finish it in the upstairs of my girlfriend's parents' house because it cost me my ability to pay rent even. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was just, uh, uh, you know, and I hate to say I was a one-man army because that doesn't do credit to the people who, you know, volunteered. I had a volunteer narrator. I had a volunteer animator. Uh, so I don't want to ever, you know, slight those people. And, you know, as I mentioned, the cameramen and stuff who helped me. Um, but, yeah, this was – so I actually started before Not Quite Hollywood, but um, – yeah, the, you know, that stuff came out while I was uh, still putting the finishing touches on mine. By the way, One Man Army sounds like a Franco Nero film in 1978. Uh, why can't it be a Franco Nero movie in, you know, 2012? Well, we, we established he's still a movie star. Well, good. You talk to him then. I'll review it then. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so, Mike, if, if people, besides uh, wanting more information, uh, let's, let's start with, uh, for more information on how to find your documentary, what, what should folks do? Uh, the big gathering place now is on Facebook, facebook.com slash Eurocrime. Okay. And if if folks were trying to do Eurocrime 101, what, what films should they start with? Well, yeah, the ones that, and I think that some of them just came off Netflix instant, but uh, the ones you can start with uh, that have been available for a long time on Netflix have been uh, The Italian Connection, Caliber 9, Street Law, those are those are three solid. Because I think that the core of Eurocrime movies are, you know, kind of this one man against the world kind of theme. And I think all three of those embody that pretty well. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for your interest. That's Mike Malloy, the director of the documentary Eurocrime, which hit the streets of the U.K. earlier this week. All right, we have a few minutes left. Here's my chat with Padma. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Padma. How are you? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Uh, we're hanging here in Indianapolis. I'm good. I'm good. We're just um, we're sitting here drinking up some coffee. <laughs> Very happy, jittery people. Well, that's good to know. When when it comes to summer, what what is the first uh, dish that you think of? Well, you know, I think there's nothing so classic in summer as ice cream. And I'm going to show you how to dress up ice cream and make it into a fabulous dessert and give your guests a coffee all rolled into one. And the recipe is so easy, but if you don't write it down, it's on Nespresso.com. Basically, Nespresso makes these great espresso machines. Their coffee machines are renowned all over the world. And um, they basically have a pixie machine, which is the one I love. It comes in a lot of colors. You pop the little capsule of coffee in the best possible coffee you make the espresso you just take a beautiful simple scoop of vanilla ice cream put it in a coffee cup pour the espresso hot over it sprinkle some chocolate chips and drizzle some caramel sauce that is it you could add nuts you could add cinnamon you know you could add peanut butter chips but that's the basic recipe and again if you're Viewers are, you know, sorry, if your listeners are driving or whatever, it's on the website. Go to Nespresso.com. Sounds like a good movie treat as well. It's awesome, honestly. It, you know, they have this beautiful um, milk machine called the Arachino, and it's basically you just plug it in, and it steams up the milk and gives you that foam, just like those high-end, uh, co- you know, coffee bars all across Italy and Switzerland and France. It foams everything up. It steams the milk in one second. It's 
beautiful. Actually, probably about 30 seconds, but it's so easy to do. Well, can you tell us a little bit of uh, what's in store for season 10 of Top Chef? Well, we haven't filmed it yet, so there's not much I can tell you. We're in pre-production right now. I think we're just all racking our brains and figuring out how we're going to top Texas from last last season. I mean, we had such an incredible, incredible season, and, and we're just gearing to shoot. It'll probably be on the fall, and I think we're trying to shake it up again. I think you'll see a lot of surprises. I mean, you know, Charlize Theron and... Patty LaBelle were on last season, so who knows who they'll come up with this season. Padma, we can top Texas, Indianapolis. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> so I was curious, um, when you see somebody cooking in a movie, do you pay extra special attention to see if they're actually doing it right? You know, that's a great question. I do, actually. I'm a big freak about continuity um, because, you know, I come from theater and I've done a couple of movies, and so... I can always tell when there's not continuity or when someone's phoning it in. And, like, you know that scene um, in Jerry Maguire where Renee Zellweger answers the door? Watch it. When they cut to his view, her um, necklace is tied differently. Ah, yes. (laughs) So who can, movie-wise, who can cook? You know what? Stanley Tucci can cook his face off. That is not, (laughs) he is not playing. Everything in Big Night is very authentic. Great so film. So can Martin Scorsese. His first student film was a film about his mom's spaghetti sauce. He gave me a copy of it. It's brilliant. And didn't she do all the cooking in that one kitchen scene in Goodfellas? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's an incredible scene. So anytime uh, we're going to see you in a movie anytime soon? I have a couple offers, but my problem is my scheduling. You know, mm-hmm. you have to really do one thing and do it well. I, would, I haven't been in a movie since I started Top Chef five years ago. My last film was for the BBC. I would love to do another film. It just has to be the right one and, and work with the schedule, which is not always easy. I'm just thankful for my job on Top Chef at this point. Of course. Padma, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care, Matthew. All right. You too. Yes, my chat with Padma Lachmi is the gift that keeps on giving. Okay, in retrospect, let's let's not forget Dunkirk is still the, for me the best film of the summer. It is out in theater still. Bigger the better. Uh, prepare for it to be loud over at IMAX. Uh, J Air, a new musical adaptation, is happening at the Grove House. It is happening. Uh, final performances on Saturday at 8 p.m. and Sunday. At uh, 6 p.m., if I remember correctly, but uh, you can check out J. Air there. And, of course, Mike Malloy's film Eurocrime is on the streets of the U.K. It's, of course, it's it's on video in the U.K. You can rent it here in the States as well. Otherwise, go check out a John Hurd film. There's plenty of them out there you should see. And, and find ones that you haven't. And, of course, next weekend, Fiddler on the Roof happens the 4th through the 6th and the 11th through the 13th at Richmond Civic Theater. Go to go, GoRCT.org for information. There's plenty of live theaters to see in Indianapolis as well. Go see a good movie or a good play you deserve. It. Here's some words to live by. Silent breed is people! Zardoz has spoken. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan.
great. And on that note, you're watching Film Sociology. Otto, don't flatter yourself. It wasn't that great. This is pretty much the worst video ever made. Turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off! Shut up! My God! You have no freaking lie! Because it's garbage! And the editor that let it come out is garbage! So get your facts straight. It's dumb. <laughs> no. That's not what I said. Pull the string! Pull the string! I can't believe you've let her watch Manoff. <laughs> is she scarred for life? Let's put it this way. What parent are you? <laughs> When I wake her up, I vocalize the theme to wake her up to get her oh, ready to school. Oh, you're a terrible father. <laughs> we'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live!